Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT, lend your voice to the, to the debate, or you can go to WQLN.org to kind of follow our show. Today we want to talk about the legacy of Dr. King. Obviously this month that will be the subject of the day uh, for many of the places that you will go. And the number that I want to start with is 75, 75%. 75% was the disapproval rating of Dr. King from a 1968 Harris poll. I want you to dissect that or digest that for a minute. 75%. And the disapproval rating wasn't much better amongst African Americans at that time. When we talk about Dr. King, we sanitize um, his legacy in so many ways. And in my opinion, there's, there's a lack of appreciation for the actual struggle and the loneliness that came along with his road or his journey as the activist, the activist and the freedom fighter that he was. When I moderated a discussion with Dr. Michael Eric Dyson uh, late last year in 2018, he talked about his book, What Truth Sounds Like. And in that book, he analyzed the 1963 meeting between then Attorney General Robert Kennedy and um, James Baldwin and a host of others. When James Baldwin convened these other African-Americans to speak to Robert Kennedy about just the struggles of African-Americans at that time, one of the things that was said was, we want you to talk to people other than Dr. King, because you people had heard enough from Dr. King. And when you continually look at the relationship between even our government and Dr. King, and I think about things like the FBI's program, counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, there was an interesting article from Stanford University that talked about this FBI investigation of Dr. King. And for many of you who aren't aware, this subversive operation dogged Dr. King for many of his last days on Earth. It says, throughout the 1930s, the FBI's role was expanded when President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Roosevelt asked the FBI to research subversives. Subversives. Dr. King, in their opinion, fit that description. And so for years, they found themselves under FBI surveillance. Some of you heard some of these things. There were tapes released on the life of Dr. King, and this was amped up by a speech that he gave condemning the Vietnam War, April 4th, 1967. And it was his Beyond Vietnam speech. And so at that time, Hoover turned the heat up on him. So I want you to think about some things as we're talking about Dr. King's legacy where everything stood then and where things stand today. Even when you look at the relationship between the FBI and Dr. King with this COINTELPRO program, that was the very same FBI that was charged with the task of investigating injustices towards civil rights marchers. So you can see the duplicitousness of that and the frustration of that. So on the one hand, Dr. King and others are depending on this, this organization and at the same time, they all knew that they were being surveyed by this organization, which even goes in today with the relationship between law enforcement and the African-American community. One of many examples that led to this adversarial exchange. So I want you to embrace the complexities 
of this legacy, the complexities of everything that comes along with the civil rights movement as we celebrate the legacy of Dr. King this month and not look past the ugly side of what it meant to be the, the, uh, the beacon of justice and hope that he was. And in order to help us analyze these things today, we bring a couple of guests as usual. To my right, we want to start with Mark Blunt. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, Art Leopold. Art, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. And the good Dr. Baker, Dr. Paris Baker. Dr. Baker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. And so we'll start with, with you, Art. We know that you are an activist and you're involved with, you can actually list some of the organizations that you've been involved with, some of the efforts that you've been involved with, but I know you from just your boots on the ground approach to injustice in the city of Erie. Talk a little bit about your background in that and then segue into some of the struggles of Dr. King and civil rights workers um, with injustice. Uh, my background starts for many years uh, uh, with an organization called Citizens Against Racism in Erie. We just celebrated our 26th year this year in trying to uh, create inclusion, fight diversity, or ex uh, promote diversity, and fight uh, all things that are against uh, bringing people together. And it sprung into uh, NAACP, currently Erie County United, uh, Keystone Progress, People for a Livable Erie is a new group that has been formed I'm also involved Benedictines for Peace and uh, Our Water, Our Air, Our Rights as an environmental group. The idea of being involved in groups is to raise awareness. Um, we need to get more people into the fold, into the conversation in order to fight for justice because justice is what it's all about. In all these areas, environmental justice, racial justice, equality, in order to do that, you need people. You need people of like-mindedness. Mm -hmm. And why, and we're going to see as we go into Martin Luther King and what he did in his speech and some of the other areas, we need to change policy. Because without changing policy and changing law, we can't really affect the changes we need. Absolutely. But in order for that to happen, we need to bring people into the discussion and that's activism. Mm -hmm. Well, that's something that we'll unpack a little more as the show goes on. I want to bring Mark into this discussion. Uh, Mark is a huge friend of the show, and he's always listed as a concerned citizen. Mark, talk a little bit about some of what I, I started to unpack with the FBI, uh, Dr. King, and just some of the struggles that he had, not just with law enforcement, but with uh, people in general as his days wound down. As a leader, once you take a position, you expose yourself to criticism and I guess judgment. And I guess with Dr. King, Dr. King had a vision and he went with it and he went with nonviolence. And I think that a lot of people may have had problems with that nonviolent approach later on, but I think they wasn't looking at what King was facing because one of the things I believe King doesn't get credit for, he took the fear out of attacking a system that has systematically terrorized the South. It's easy in Newark, it's easy in Harlem to, to say what you would have did in Birmingham, but you wasn't in Birmingham. You wasn't in Laurel, you wasn't in Tupelo. You were up here and that's a different, that's a different take. And I think you, people don't appreciate the courage that he had and what, how it gave us a, a rallying cry 
and even to the, the Panther movement, and even to, to other movements that, that took that courage, that took his words and embodied it and then challenged all of us. It challenged all of us. It made, it made, some, made us not comfortable. It made, us, it made us rethink our positions about justice, equality, and I, and I give him credit for that, and I just think that that's misunderstood with him. Because, of course, he's a threat to the government when you start talking about poverty. When he evolves and he, and he starts talking about the war against a yellow man, and he left the lands over here, and he just, it wasn't just an American justice that he, saw, that he sought. He sought a world justice. Justice was just justice to him. As he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. everywhere. And, 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 and those things, I think it, that was a threat to the powers that be. Mm. And it was real. And I think that, that he was willing to take that, and he paid the price mm. in what he believed in. Dr. Dr. Baker, diversity, inclusion, these are things that you have done extensive work on, um, even with the police department. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about this legacy of Dr. King and this, this hidden side, if you will, you know, beyond just the glorified speeches of the struggles that he had mm -hmm. when he was um, on this earth doing his work. Um, one of the things that I admire about Dr. King and what I think he did masterfully is he understood the policy that governed America. And so when you have statements like, all men are created equal, he reinforced that by taking that policy, which is the Constitution Declaration of Independence, holding it up to the nation and saying, what does this mean? If all is all, why doesn't it include all these other folks? And so part of what King did is continuously to say, here are the rules of the game that you play by. We want to be included in those rules. The interesting thing that happened with, with in America's history is that uh, there's been this constant tension between state rules and federal rules. And so sometimes when the rules would change at the state level, the federal government would counteract that so that you never had a congruence between the, the rules of the game. And, and when those rules began to exclude particular groups, Dr. King said, we got something wrong with this game. And so in my mind, that was part of the, the challenge and the struggle with government is that the rules were made by people that didn't look like Dr. King or like us, you know, folks of color. Mm -hmm. And those rules were designed to basically help folks uh, move into prosperity, hold on to the prosperity, power, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Dr. King, and I, and I want to go back to what Mark said, the, the courage to stand in front of folks who you know hate you and want to see your demise and to speak truth directly to them takes an enormous amount of courage. And, and I, think I, I think that gets downplayed. People miss that. Um, the, the part about diversity, I think, is, is you know, there's, there's a whole theory on you know, Dr. King was assassinated when he, when he started the Poor People's March because that was inclusive. Let's, let's get past race and all the other issues, whether you're white, black. If we're poor, we have a commonality, mm -hmm. and we need to change those things. Much like yeah. going after militarism. Yeah. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I want to I talk just to touch about, I started to unpack the idea of when you look at Jim Crow, black codes, all of these things. There's a fascinating documentary called 19 mm -hmm. that many of you probably seen. And if any of you haven't seen the documentary, I encourage you to see it. And it's about the prison industrial complex. And yes. I know that you just had a forum about this. Mm -hmm. But when you trace back history, looking at COINTELPRO and the way the, the, the government weaponized the FBI 
against the civil rights movement. You go back to the whole the old mantra of law and order, right? Where the police department, the federal government agencies, again weaponized against people of color who just wanted their rights. Law enforcement started becoming the poster boy, if you will, for discrimination. So I know like right now, we talk a great deal about the relationship between uh, police and community, in particular the African-American community, but talk a little bit about just the way that um, these racist policies kind of hid behind law enforcement and utilized them as the enforcement mechanism for these, unjust, these unjust and unfair policies. I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, it's very important because Martin Luther King, in the beginning and toward the end of his life with the Pe Poor People's March, knew that economic justice was the key. And from early on in the policies of the United States uh, in our economic system with the redlining that went on, a policy built in to housing and to, to loans for housing and the economic value of ha helping people move forward was withdrawn from people of color and poor people. And um, it's something that's been built into the system and it's something that we have to continue to work to root out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the and you'll see it in his speech even. He begins, he could have begun anywhere, but he began with a talk about economic justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about the relationship between government police as the enforcer of law mm -hmm. is that um, constitutionally, almost every group of color has been deemed a non-human. Mm -hmm. And so laws are designed to protect those who are deemed humans and citizens. The Constitution struggled, has always struggled, like with Native Americans, are they human, are they citizens? Even today, we're talking about folks to, the, the coming across the border, mm -hmm. and are they citizens and should we take care of them? Dr. King said if they're human, we should take care of them. Mm -hmm. The law says we enforce, I mean the police force says we gotta enforce the law. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we enforce it with the same energy, which could be negative. And, and so when I look at you, and you don't look like me, and you're trying to say human rights, human rights, mm -hmm. I have access to them because by the very nature of being human, which is kind of interesting in his speech, an inalienable rights, mm -hmm. rights that should not have to be proven. Right. If I'm alive breathing, I I'm, 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 uh, have access to these, to these uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. um, the level by which police uh, would, would victimize people, like if you look at the black and white film, you know, the, the way, it's not just that they were hit, it's the way that they were, you, these right. close-ups of their faces. Right, like, the venomous it, nature it, of it's, it. It's, it's like, I really do hate you as a threat or as a non-human, and I need to extinguish you. No different than you, you would do with an insect that's like a gnat. You're trying to like, just get away. You're annoying. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that's, that, that's, we're talking about a whole different discussion. Because mm -hmm. uh, as Art pointed out, we're talking about, and we'll segue into policy shortly, but... Policy shifts was a big thing then, and it was the end game in many instances with the civil rights movement. So if policy needed to change, obviously much of what they were doing was railing against laws mm -hmm. were on the books. Mm -hmm. And so that's what many people hid behind. They're breaking the law, mm -hmm. and thus law and order, mm -hmm. whether it was Bull Connor or George Wallace saying we need to enforce law and order, it was a convenient way 
of saying we need to get them to stand down. Mark, chime in on that a little bit. I know you're from the South. Well, you're from, you're from family. Ohio. Yeah. From Ohio. I do that to you every time. Because you went to Jackson State. That throws me off every time. Some people say up South. Up South. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to go back to your earlier, your earlier notion. Was, All right. I, I see the police as an extension of the government. I don't see it as separate. I see it as, as an extension of a culture. And I think if that culture was pro-humanity, the police would reflect that. If your culture is not pro-humanity, it will reflect that. As, as let's, let's take Bull Connor. Bull Connor, a sheriff in Birmingham, became a face mm -hmm. of enforcement of discrimination or whatever. And, and they looked at him as enforcing the law. And they looked at those that were struggling for their rights, simple human rights, as outside agitators or, or, or troublemakers. And so if you view it from that perspective, you, you, I, I don't want people just to isolate the police as if they're an island by themselves. I, I want people to understand the police come from a culture and they come from a home and they come in knowing these things. And if you could be with that and support that, then there's a, there's a systemic problem right there that, that we need to deal with that uh, Dr. Baker talks about and he's talking about seeing people in the realm of humanity. And Nixon once said that he couldn't make being black illegal, so he convinced people of war drugs, and mm -hmm. it became synonymous, and it led to mass incarceration. And I say these things for you all to understand and unravel our deeper problem here. We have a cultural, uh, moral bankruptcy that's going on, and we have it today with Trump. We, we, we are using dog whistle talks, and we're, dealing, we're not dealing with core issues to address the symptoms of racism and discrimination or what have you, because we're acting like it was just simply a law. No, it wasn't just about laws. It was about someone being human or not. Mm -hmm. and, and it comes to a point where there's a right and there's a wrong, and we need to address those, mm -hmm. those things. And we want to bring Art back into this, and that's one of the things that we're doing. Dr. King was arrested 29 times, mm -hmm. 29 times. And so this is obviously not a police bashing session, mm -hmm. but we want people to connect the dots because many of the issues that we see today that we go after in 2019, you trace it back. You start mm -hmm. to see the root causes of this, and this is one of the things that we're encouraging you to analyze mm -hmm. as we celebrate the legacy of Dr. King. Much of what you see today can be resolved in your mind if you research where this whole thing has come from. Excuse me. Art, chime in on this. Uh, one of the studies that I've done in recent years is in uh, Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow. And mm -hmm. in it, you realize that, yes, we were able to turn away from the Jim Crow laws, but then what took their place was uh, the movement toward mass incarceration, particularly of the minority population. People don't realize in the last 30 years, we have grown from a society that incarcerated two or 300,000 people to now there's 2.4 million mm -hmm. in prisons. There's 11.5 million people involved in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And these people, the majority of these folks are there for minor crimes. And the war on drugs has been primarily put down on the head of minority and poor people, mm -hmm. marginalized people. And it's been done so in order, in a way, through society, to take care of a mass of people that want to be pushed uh, to the fringe. Don't forget, when, when you are incarcerated, there's a whole raft of, of rights that you lose. You, you don't have an easy time to go out and rent 
housing or buy housing. You don't have an easy time to uh, get loans or student loans uh, in some places you can't vote. There's a whole raft of things that, that leave you as a human being and as a citizen of this country because of incarceration. And, and for me, one of my big purposes right now is to reduce mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. I've done it in a number of places in promoting the decriminalization of marijuana so that people don't get involved in the, in the system, to, to put on programs like we had last night uh, to keep people out of the criminal justice system because for me, if you're not involved in that system, then you can maintain your rights and grow and you have, you have a future. If you get involved, and unfortunately, the laws are bent that way for some people in the society, uh, they take you into a place where you don't have rights. Dr. Baker, mm -hmm. art's breaking down a lot of complex things that are kind of interwoven together. Dr. King understood, mm -hmm. as you pointed out earlier, that this thing is complex. And when he started going after the entire machine, that's when the panic button uh, began to get hit at a rapid pace by our government. Unpack that a little more for us. Um, focusing on any particular issue in and of itself is not threatening. When 250,000 people show up in Washington, which at that time was huge, mm -hmm. monumental, mm -hmm. to say, we believe in what you're saying. That can be threatening. That, can be, that could be dangerous. But here is, uh, I want to go back to your, your opening comment. Here's a real issue for me. Dr. King, at one, at, in one sense, was on the same level as Jesus Christ. Not that he is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ was accused of a whole bunch of stuff. He's, he is God himself. And men were looking, always trying to find him and accuse him of something that he was doing that was breaking the law so that they could point their finger and then find a way to kill him. Interesting. That was the whole hunt. Everywhere he went, it was, let's listen and watch so that we can catch him. Now, that's amazing. As a, as a kid, I'll get back to your question, but as a kid, what, what I find, I was like, you know, five, six, seven years old when, when he did the I Have a Dream speech. I was amazed that there was a black man. That, that was the, the cool from, he galvanized me when I saw a black man standing up in front of white people saying, it's wrong. Eloquently. Eloquently. I knew it was wrong at five, but I didn't, I didn't know how to say it, didn't know how to feel it, didn't know how to express it. Mm -hmm. There right now, we have a ton of young men who are saying, I know it's wrong. This is not right. And the nation's beginning to wake up and saying, this is not right. A perfect example is going on right now with this the shutdown. The government is supposed to take care of us. And so right now, there is, this is a prime time for anyone to say, this is unjust, this is unjust, and we should do something about it. Whoever does that, though, will become a threat mm. to the nation because we will be galvanized because what we want is hope that this will change. And anyone who can do that now will become a threat. I want to segue into that iconic speech. I have a dream, and I wanted to dissect it a bit. This is actually an idea of Dr. Baker, credit, given where credit is due, because it's the one that we show all the time, and, oh, it sounds so nice. And, boy, the, the words just roll off his tongue, and they do. One of the most articulate men, intelligent men in, in human history. Charismatic. Charismatic. Absolutely. But let's really analyze. Mark, I want to start with you. Just a, the part of the speech or parts of the speech that capture your attention or that you want to focus on for our listeners and for our viewers? I like how he contrasted the time warp where he said 100 years later, 
Where do we stand on the steps of where Lincoln's monument was? Where do we stand since the Emancipation Proclamation? And he gauged the progress. And I could almost ask that question today right here in Erie, Pennsylvania, and I could say, he used the term 100 years. I say now it's 155. Where do we stand? What does the political map look like since 1865 to right now to 2018? It looks the same. The South is separate. The North is going one way. And then yet, what is the main focus? It's still race. And I think President Obama kind of like highlighted that. His very mere presence highlighted that. What was the difference between some of those Dixiecrats versus <laughs> Mitch McConnell? What, 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 and if you measure that, and you play some of the same tapes, and you play, you, 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 you study, you hear the same nuances, you see the same subjects, building walls versus mending fences, you, 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 you see the pullback. And it's, it's sad. And then yet, I also think of Dr. King says his dream is, is rooted in the American dream. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe I have to rethink this and say, maybe we, we don't need to focus on dreams, but focus on our realities. Mm -hmm. And then build dreams from our realities. Our reality says we're not living in a dream. Our reality says that the American dream is not reachable by many. We can say Dr. King's dream has come a long way. But if you think that Dr. King's dream was simply running, being able to run for a political office and acquire that, you're mistaken. Mm -hmm. He said all, not some. He's, he, he, people played, they played, kids played together in Alabama way in mm -hmm. his time. Mm -hmm. But it's different than that, man. It's mm -hmm. about opportunity. It's about inclusion where you shouldn't even have to demand it or protest it. It should run down, as he says, as a mighty river. It should, it should, it should be a natural thing to be a man what you are and mm -hmm. to be able to be whoever you are. Mm -hmm. And we still struggle with that. We still think people can impose their wills or rights or their paranoias on one's plight to just live. Mm -hmm. Art, Mark is throwing down the gauntlet. Extract something. <laughs> well, but except he, he took some of my thunder. <laughs> Because it's all good. Tell I mean, us where I, you are with I'm the telling you, uh, one of my, and there's so many memorable passages, but uh, we will not be satisfied until mm. justice rolls like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is so much in that. We cannot become the people that we need to be without all of us being free and taking part in this justice mm -hmm. that American promised us. Mm -hmm. And he also says he refuses, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt mm -hmm. because it isn't. It's there for all of us, but it's there for none of us unless we all can take part. Mm -hmm. I love the fact, and I'll let yeah. you start unpacking yours, I love yeah. the fact that he opens up with the duplicitousness of that famous line that all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And here, why are we even standing here if that's the case? Right. And I've always found it fascinating that, you know, some of the original founders of this country, uh, how some of their words are lionized, although they're extremely contradictive to the time. Mm -hmm. So he undresses that from the beginning. Go ahead with what you saw from that speech. Well, all of it for me. Mm -hmm. and, but uh, for today, uh, he says, now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. And again, he, he's using the Bible, he's using the Constitution to throw it back into the face, to say, deal with this. But um, 
if I can continue, it would be, mm-hmm. it would be fatal for the nation to overcome the urgency of the moment. Mm-hmm. The legitimate discontent of the Negro should not be overlooked. And one of the things, uh, I do a lot of diversity trainings, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. is why do we need to keep talking about this? And the reason we, keep, we need to keep talking about these issues is they haven't dissipated, they haven't changed. And so it would be fatal for the nation today to miss the, the fierce urgency of the moment. The Black Lives Matter movement, for example, is an outcry of this situation hasn't changed. And yeah. if, if you don't pay attention to it, right. it will just continue to grow. Mm-hmm. My struggle, and again, what I think, in, in looking at Dr. King, these are, two, these are two different speeches. And he struggled. The first one was, I'm trying to, to give a speech that can address all people. Then he shifts to the dream, and I believe that we, can, we should continue the dream because dreams come from God in this sense, that these visions come directly from God himself. The Bible is, is replete with visions and dreams that he shares with us, and part of that is love justice, love mercy, treat people right. That comes from God mm-hmm. and how we do that. So he has one speech where he's saying America has a problem, but then he does a shift. He says in the dream, and he starts addressing racial issues black and white to be together, mm-hmm. Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, all the, 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 these things that the, divide us. And it was interesting that Mahala Jack, it was Mahala Jackson. Said, tell him about the dream. Tell him about the dream. Because <laughs> right. he was going one way. And if you look at the black and white, he's, he's reading, he's looking, he's reading, he's looking. But when we get to the dream. He starts freestyle. He is, he is impromptu. He's just <laughs> right. coming from the heart. And that's what I love about it. And you can see that the spirit of God has taken over and said, mm-hmm. here is what we need to talk about. And, and again, that dream, although it's specific to certain issues, is a dream for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so... I love it all. This is next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. I'm live in studio with uh, Mark Blunt, Art Leopold, Dr. Paris Baker. We're talking about the legacy of Dr. King. And in this segment specifically, we are talking about the I Have a Dream speech. So to go back to what you're saying, the biblical nature and the spiritual nature of everything, because obviously, you know, his doctoral degree was in, you know, theology. Right? This is a reverence, he's a pastor. And so I want to go after a couple of things that, because he makes sure that he does not alienate. Right. Our white brothers and sisters, and I say that as a, my brother Art sits <laughs> next to me in studio, you know, in the speech, in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds, first of all, mm-hmm. and to not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. And then he points out that the marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to distrust all white people mm-hmm. for many of our white brothers as evidenced by the presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. Amen. Speak to that, Art. Yeah, no, and he goes on to say, now is a time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial mm. injustice mm-hmm. to the solid rock of brotherhood. Mm-hmm. What does a brotherhood mean? It means mm-hmm. that we all mm-hmm. have to take part in that. Mm-hmm. And I thank Dr. Paris and yourself for bringing us back to the spiritual nature of what he had to say. Because after all, what we are dealing with as spiritual beings is the heart, Mm -hmm. is the spirit. He talks about love in the speech for Mm -hmm. us all. Mm -hmm. And so you're exactly correct. Mm -hmm. You know, we cannot all prosper unless it's all of us. Mm -hmm. We are Mm -hmm. not going to get there. He also talked about those who hope that the Negro needed to, quote unquote, blow off steam Mm -hmm. will now be content or now we'll be content, we'll have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. And the, the whirlwinds of revolt will continue, mm. think of that, to shake 
the foundations of our nation until the bright days of justice emerge. It will not happen for us mm -hmm. unless we are allowing and bring forth all people to take part. Mm -hmm. Mark, you alluded to the Black Panther Party at the time, uh, not too long ago, and I know I had you on last year, and we talked a lot about the youth or the young generation at that time, Stokely Carmichael, now Kwame Ture, mm -hmm. and the others from that time. When you see this type of language in the speech, I get the sense that Dr. King was trying to bridge generations too because you had more of a radical edge out there that was starting to develop in society because people were getting restless. How do you see that? I think Dr. King was feeling the weight as he, when you're a leader, sometimes not only do you own the situation, you kind of own the results and the pressure of the want for justice, the pressure of, the, of, of getting results of something that existed for 400 years. Mm -hmm. And the moment, as he says, the urgency of now, and people are holding you accountable for now, here you are, this prophet, you're promising, you're, you're suggesting that we be nonviolent in an irrational situation. And you have voices like Malcolm that's saying things, and you have other movements that's going on in the same dynamic, and he's saying, hold up, let's stay this course. There's a pressure to that. All prophets reach a moment of, questioning their faith and their practice. You have that garden moment. And Martin stayed his, stayed his course. However, I think Martin was reevaluating re certain things because again, he, 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 he realized it wasn't just about laws, it was about the economics of the situation. It, it, it was how can these young people question or, or what, what, what was they discouraged about? And then he said, hold up. I've made these promises and these results just aren't matching these kids' reality. So they wasn't seeing it. They was hearing about a dream, but what did that mean to that kid in Chicago? I always equate, there were some historic moments in Erie's history. We had two African-American presidents of historically white universities, as in Gannon and Edinburgh. Uh -huh. Unprecedented. Uh -huh. Never thought of to a lot of people that grew up in Erie. But I asked, what did it mean to that child on 22nd Street? Mm -hmm. I asked, did it impact them? Besides the titles, besides this acquisition of power or whatever, how, how did it affect their lives? And Dr. King was trying to change lives because also going back to what Paris has said, and I guess what you all have hinted, going back to our rights doesn't really come from a constitu constitution. When the declaration was written, it said you have an inalienable right mm -hmm. from God. Mm -hmm. So it, there's no such thing as an immoral law. Mm -hmm. And if there is an unjust law, we have to do something about it. And Dr. King stood with that. Mm -hmm. And I guess the ramifications of that, you have to own up to the expectations. And I think he was willing to bear it. He made those sacrifices. Mm -hmm. But it mm -hmm. takes a toll. I want to use something that you said as a segue. You talked about Chicago and whether or not that the, the young man, a young woman in Chicago feels, you know, the reverberation of what was going on during Dr. King's time. There's a young lady by the name of Tanikia Carpenter who's actually coming um, to Erie to speak on issues uh, along these lines for King Holiday. And she has an article that is dealing with the whole Michael Brown protest. Mm -hmm. And uh, her and her husband had gone to this protest and uh, were part of the protest in Ferguson and she was on a high. I sent you guys the article a little bit. Mm -hmm. To tie it to something Dr. King said, something I actually just said a second ago, 
when it says those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam, if you will. Mm -hmm. She goes after that mm -hmm. in this article of blowing off steam versus trying to affect policy. Mm -hmm. Dr. Baker, we'll start with you because I know that you have to head out of here shortly. What did you glean from that article? Interesting, because I, I think metaphorically. And so here, here's what, when I was reading this, what she was saying is equivalent to coming to an emergency room and being triaged. So I have a heart attack, but you're rubbing my back to make me feel good. The protest is one way to feel good, but what I really need is I'm having a heart attack. And so you have to address the heart attack, not help me to feel good. When, when somebody's in hospice care, you know what they do? You rub their back until they die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there was, a, there, there was a method to it, but it's not gonna get us anywhere. What we need to do is after the protests or during the protests is have a plan, some kind of plan that says, the, to me the protest is to galvanize people together. We have a common interest and we're all angry. But then where do we go from here? And so we've had a lot of protest, you know, whether it was in Louisiana or New York or Ferguson or what have you, sometime even in Erie, you know, we were marching around City Hall a couple years ago. Yep. Um, but after you walk and you move, what do you do? And part of, again, for me, the struggle, the emptiness of the struggle and where I think young people are at is I don't want to march anymore. I want to do something. Yeah. I want to do something. And without direction, you know what I'll do? I might become violent. I don't condone violence, but I do understand what they're saying is triage me because my issue is important, but it seems to be put in the back burner. Yeah. And, I, and in order to get attention, it's kind of like negative attention does get attention. So I'll do something, but I need you to own that and to help me get through this. Mm, art is an activist. This article by Tanikia Carpenter, mm -hmm. uh, what, what was your takeaway? I mean, she is so right mm -hmm. because... Uh, Policy is important to the point where it's the only way laws are going to change. If we don't change the laws and the way the laws affect people, then we can march until the cows come home. Marching's important because it galvanizes people. It brings people of similar interest together. It awakens people, and you need that. But in the end, it's what our legislators and our representatives, it's what's on their mind. And it's up to us to make sure that our interests are on their minds mm -hmm. so that we can change policy. And she speaks to that in the article that mm -hmm. she presents. So I'm looking forward to her talk. Mm -hmm. She extracted a tweet. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Doctor. If I could just jump in here. Sure. One of the things that Dr. King addresses that she kind of gets around to is the whole notion of interposition and nullification. That is, you can have a law and someone can say, I don't care. We had a governor in Alabama say, I don't care what the law is. That's right. Segregation today, tomorrow, forever. And you can change the law if you want, but this de facto discrimination, I'm going to do what I want to <laughs> right. do. And again, part of the frustration is not only have a law, but enforce the law in the way it was written. Mm -hmm. And so our young people do not believe, even if you change the law, it's going to change anything because people tend to move it. Mm -hmm. And so I have to, I want to take this into my own hands and make it happen. And we got to convince them, like Dr. King said, don't let this militancy take us into places where we become nonviolent. There right. is a way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, we just got to pay attention to. She extracted process. a tweet mm -hmm. from Chicago about people asking others to come to the Chicago, to Chicago PD, let's shut it down um, at that time. Obviously viewing it as somewhat of an exercise in futility. 
Mark, you pointed out something before we even started that she may have potentially missed in this article. What was your take? I'm going to put on my glasses for this because <laughs> your eyes hurt. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I want to get back to I, I, I see it as a different way. Mm -hmm. I see it as Dr. King <coughs> said writing is the language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. And I don't look at the unheard and the victims and say, hey, how should they act or react? I see it as a as a reflex mm -hmm. to the injustices and the promises that was made to them. Now, I'm going to go to the W.B. Du Bois route and say, I hold the talented 10th to say, where do we go from here? Ah. Mm -hmm. I don't hold the victim and say, hey, what, uh, you are a riot is not planned. Uh, 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 the protest, I see it as it's just a, another tool of bringing awareness. I don't think it should be the end game. Right. I really don't. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the role of the other people. The fact that the masses will come together to even protest should be applauded. Mm -hmm. I'm th that that is America. There's a point to that's that. How we, that's how There's we were founded. And that. all of a sudden with this, we're going to question that. Mm -hmm. No, the masses, I don't expect them to have that strategizing session. But I do expect some people behind the scenes. That's where I'm disappointed at. The people that come and tell you to vote and the importance of voting. Mm -hmm. I expect them to say, hey, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. I expect them to organize that masses, inform that masses of how we can be more effective together. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm not going to look at the protesters, even the ones that want to shut down. I'm not going to shut down anybody's positive form of expression. Mm -hmm. If that's the way, if God is in their heart and they say they want to block that mm -hmm. and, and it's not harming anybody, I'm for that. But I'm not for that being the end game. And what we've lost is the end game. Right. What we lost is where do we go from kneeling? We even debating about that. We can't get caught up in the debate. We can't get hate from the debate. We have to get a plan from the debate. Right. And what we get is hate. We get discourse, and we just oh, forget it all anyway. While 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 it still exists, which is which is crazy. So so that's the part that's the part I have, and I I, I have a again. We have to understand that this country was founded on a protest. Right. So the fact that they protested, hey. It makes sense. It says that they done bought into to something. We got to give them credit for that. Mm -hmm. They demanded something that they that they feel they should have. You know, as I read this article about Tanikia Carpenter, I think that a lot of your fire and your ire, for that matter, <laughs> is embedded in this article. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we don't emphasize enough to uh, not just our children, but to the public in general, nonviolence resistance training mm -hmm. that many of these nonviolent yes. protesters went through mm -hmm. in order to be adequately prepared. The fact that Rosa Parks, A, had a narrative better than Claudette Calvin, mm -hmm. who was the first sister to not mm -hmm. give up her seat on the bus, right. but was 15 and, unwed, and an unwed mother. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work if you want to hang a movement on somebody. Yeah. So here you have Sister Rosa, who's in charge of the youth, the, the youth movement for the NAACP, yeah. goes through nonviolence resistance training. Amen. None of that mm -hmm. was happenstance. Right. It was a strategic plan. So right. I think it goes into the article. It goes into what you were saying. And, and, and let's let's be clear about this. Everybody's not going to agree to certain methodology. Right. But let's agree to move forward. Mm -hmm. Dr. King didn't agree with the sit-ins. When, when the students wanted to sit in, Dr. King wasn't in favor, but he didn't get it in the way. Mm -hmm. He didn't sabotage it. Mm -hmm. They coordinated it, mm -hmm. although he didn't agree with it. But again, 
Uh, you can't even think of that movement without the sit-ins now mm -hmm. because everybody wants to play a part. And if they want to play it, I encourage it. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to try to enhance you. I'm not going to try to chop your legs off. And we got too much chopping the legs off. We got too much part of the speech that he said. He said, we in Mississippi, they can't vote. Mm -hmm. And up in Newark, we don't have a reason to vote. Mm -hmm. And it's still the situation. It's, it's still the same thing. Whereas the IDs, what, what we, what, the other year we was talking about, you have to show your ID. That was different in 1865. You didn't have to show an ID. Mm -hmm. Find that strange. In 2018, <laughs> you, you, when a black president or African-American president come along, all of a sudden you're questioning citizenship. And you're saying, wait a minute, who are you at these polls? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who are you? After years of Chicago practices and after years of whatever, it took a black president to find this, for them to say, hey, wait a minute, who is voting? Mm -hmm. So, so I find all these things odd, and I, I think, again, as every year at this time, we reflect on how far we are from that moment, and every year we come to the conclusion that we say, we got a long way to go. We do. You know, we, you make excellent points. You, this is not a monolithic thing. You're right. People don't agree on the methodology. Letter from Birmingham jail, Dr. King did not agree with the Children's Crusade. He didn't like the idea that kids were being utilized by James Bevel. Mm -hmm. King was like, I'm not for that. Bevel said, listen, the parents don't want to do it. The parents were scared. Can't do it. Right? And so the kids did and were locked up in droves. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There's not a monolithic voice. And whenever you have to, to, yeah. to roll out. I want to say one more thing. You're and then fine. I, I'm watching your clock. Okay. I want to go back to a couple of things that were said in that we were founded on the right to protest. So it made me think of right now, we have this, this, this um, NFL quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, yeah. who says, my First Amendment right is to protest. That protest is redefined as now being unpatriotic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he is expressing his First Amendment right. And so that's what I'm arguing, is that we can do it, but we have to support that in a in a meaningful way that takes us beyond just kneeling because now that's been redefined mm -hmm. to being something that it's not and it and the narrative has gone way to the left or way to the right depending on what political persuasion you are and and so it's it's lost we got to do better there. Can I bring that full circle? That goes back to the 75% disapproval rating mm -hmm. of Dr. King. That goes back to COINTELPRO, which at that time, his actions were deemed unpatriotic in many ways. Right. So for the listeners and for the viewers, well, what Colin Kaepernick is being unpatriotic. That page was taken out of a playbook from yeah. decades ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I want to, there's one quote I want to mention of Dr. King's. He said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, Absolutely. but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So he knew from the beginning that he was going to be set upon and put upon and really ultimately take his life. All right. All right. Thank you, Dr. Baker. So, gentlemen, we talk about an end goal and an end result. I want to spend the last few minutes talking about the gains of the civil rights movement and, and the work of Dr. King and others, just to accentuate everything that we've been saying, mm -hmm. to add you know, that exclamation point on the fact that we've got to get somewhere with these protests. And that goes even starting with the 1957 Crusade for Citizenship, registering thousands of black voters across the South. Black voter clinics on the law and politics continue through the 60s, where there's certain things in history that, that capture your attention when you think about protests with an intentional end. Well, the labor movement, 
the labor movement got us to a 40-hour week overtime pay and certain workplace practices that wasn't always there. We have the women's suffrage movement, which led to, I believe, the 19th or whatever amendment that gave the uh, women population their right to vote. We have several movements that led to positive, I guess what you quote say, end games, but yet the teeth of it, yet the how we deal with it. everybody can agree a, work, a man that works eight hours should be paid. I believe we 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 can agree on that. Everybody believes that women should vote, but it, it seems like it when it always came to the African Americans, even when Reconstruction was proposed to make it whole, it was a pullback. When it was forty acres in a, a mule, there was a pullback. We struggle today with affirmative action, yet we don't struggle with veterans' preferences. We struggle today with helping one out, but yet we don't struggle with the GI Bill. We don't struggle with uh, first-time homeowners programs or things of that nature. And I'm just wondering, what, what, how do we get to the point where we could get past this? And that thing has to happen through think tanks. Mm -hmm. That thing has to happen through uh, a collective, a collective getting together with some strategizing. And that's the part that I, I just don't think has happened. I really don't. I think it's been too much posturing. I think it's, as you would say, protesting, I would say commenting in social media hasn't helped because people are now doing it from their couch versus doing it in, a, in an active way. They're just, they're just mailing it in. And I, can't, I don't think you can mail in a movement. You can't. I think you have to show up and show out if you want results. You can't mail it in. And I think we've sent a confusing message to our uh, young people mm -hmm. about how to get results. And we talk about the strategy of the movement 63, this March on Washington with this famous speech organized by Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph, yes. big union organizer. Porter's movement. These are Pullman Porters. These are strategic men. And Pullman Porters, we got to do a whole show on that. <laughs> Fascinating piece of African-American history. But this was the precursor to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Exactly. So again, right. you see steps being taken towards change, legitimate change. All right, Art, chime in on this a little bit with the, the gains. I mean, uh, I mean, the gains are substantive. Uh, when they decided to sit in at the lunch counters because they wouldn't be served, uh, that led to eventually, after many days, an, an opening to business to people of color. That wouldn't have happened without that action. That was necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, down in uh, Birmingham, uh, they had the discrimination of economic policies. Uh, businesses wouldn't deal with minorities or blacks, and eventually that opened up. And you know, uh, it's unfortunate, but in this society it all comes back to economics. Mm -hmm. um, because marginalized people are suppressed and put upon and in order for them to have equal opportunity, there needs to be voices heard, people stand up in order to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So Freedom Riders are spoken about, spoken about often in 1960. Freedom Riders forced the Interstate Commerce Commission to integrate interstate buses and public facilities like waiting rooms and accommodated them. You know, and the list goes on. I mean, without that, um, those gains wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's a shame. But, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Every good movement 
Every good change has started with a person, a group, of people that are willing to stand up and speak out. So as we move toward the finish line, racism, poverty, militarism, the three things that Dr. King spent much of his life railing against. Mm -hmm. Bring it to 2019, and I'll bring it back to you before we segue over to Mark. Okay. With you, I'm thinking about your forum the other day, uh, about the prison, the school to prison pipeline. Yes, yeah. The prison industrial complex, I mean, it, it's, it's such a, it's a monster in so many ways, and there's so many things to it. You know, going after something like that, what needs to be done? Well, I'm telling you, we knew uh, from the get-go that it's a, it's a very touchy topic. There are many constituencies in a lot of areas. Mm. The schools obviously believe they're doing the best, but they also are governed by laws and policies. But you may question, if you look at, why do we have 22 resource officers up at Erie High? Why is there an actual or virtual precinct that sits there if a, if a teacher has a trouble with a student, instead of having a counselor to deal with them, are they taking them right down and, and signing them up? I hope not. But the public people need to be aware that we must guard against the turning, the leaning toward things that are unacceptable mm -hmm. and really change that trajectory of, of thought and idea and promise to move it to where we can help kids so they can stay out of the system, so they're not caught up on it at an early age. We don't want 10-year-olds being arrested at school. I don't want my kid that way, and I don't think many parents do. Mm -hmm. Mark, you've already started doing that in various ways, but bring, us, bring this full circle, 2019 methodologies of the civil rights movement, Dr. King, and just some of the things that they went after. Tie this in for right now. What are we looking at, and what should we glean from what we've read about this good doctor? I think we should look at what was gained, honestly, during those those times. Where was the country headed? What stopped those gangs? What took the wind? And how do we get the wind back behind ourselves? Out of that, I, I, I want to go with, out of that movement led to a, a broader movement called, I guess, the Great Society or the Greater Society by Lyndon B. Johnson. And he did it, they did a study a government sanctioned study. It wasn't a conversation on race. It was a legitimate study to talk about numbers. And one of the conclusions of that government study was that there's a reality that America has two Americas. There's a black America and there's a white America. And the realities is just not the same. Now that's being disputed by Fox News. And now the illusion is because you had Obama that these realities don't exist no more. That's right, everything's good. And because yeah. of that, there's a frustration that happens. And sometimes it's not even an intentional frustration. It could be something as simple as, like last night, which I thought was a great effort about the prison, the school to prison pipeline. But it was, the title of it, I thought was insensitive. It was, and this is just my honest opinion from a distance. I don't look to how to avoid it. I look to how to destroy it. Because it's not a subject matter to me or my kids. It's a reality. So I would like to destroy it. It's not, it's not something that I just want to avoid. 
If there was something that was threatening your children, it's almost like Baldwin says. Baldwin, Baldwin forces you to deal with uncomfortable realities of, of, of us being us. And somehow, sometimes we kind of clean it up or filter it for some people. Mm -hmm. And then when that pain comes out, it seems it comes out in a riot form. It comes out in shouting versus hearing and articulating. And we don't discuss in the way that maybe Dr. King had patience to do. Because we have to look at the reality of this. From Rosa Parks to Presley was 100 years. It's the same case. Let's not forget that. I mean, like a lot of people don't know history for whatever reason. They fell asleep in class or what have you. Presley argued the same thing in the, in, in the 1800s. Mm. And then it's for some people that I heard say, well, he did it because he was black or whatever. Presley thought that because he was Creole, that it didn't matter about black laws or what have you. I'm not them. And America responded. The government responded, oh, you are. Yes, you are. And some people need to understand who Please. is. And mm -hmm. Dr. King even went further. I'm going to give another analogy and I'll turn it over. He was in the Birmingham jail and he was talking to one of the deputies in the jail and he said, hey, how much you make? That's right. <laughs> and in, in all the protests and all the dogs, the whatever, he, he said, hey, how much you make? Too, I guess some people would say his oppressor. And the guy said, I, what he made, and Dr. King said, well, you're supposed to be right here. It sure did. He you're said, supposed to be, we're on the same team. So he saw bigger pictures. I want to get back to Dr. King. He saw the bigger picture of it all, the humanity mm -hmm. of it all, the fairness of it all. But you got to get, you have to have patience. He could have took his anger out, but he didn't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, I'm going to give Art the last word on this, but to give Dr. King the exact quote on that, Dr. King said, well, hell, you need to be marching with us. That's right. That's right. And, he, and that. thank you. And thank you for that. <laughs> I would just say, you brought up Pressy. You know, without Pressy, we wouldn't have the NAACP. The direct formation of that organization was because of what was going on then. And so just remember, sometimes when there's something bad going on, something good can come out of it. I brought this along with me today. This is John Lewis's book called March. We have uh, MLK Day coming up and there's a march. I want everybody to come out and take part. And this is a wonderful compilation of books that John Lewis put together of his experiences. And it will inspire you, it will bring you to tears, and it'll give you a hope because some one man and one people stood up to make a change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm Marcus Atkinson. This has been Next on WQLM. And, you know, if nothing else, if you don't take anything else away from uh, this show today, we hope we've encouraged you to have a, a renewed respect for the legacy of Dr. King. We hope that we've inspired you to research a little more, to be a little more reflective on that day off and not just utilize it as a day to, uh, you know, do whatever and, and not really uh, pay homage to this legacy. There's a reason it's a national holiday name for this man, not because he was perfect. And many people go after his, his, uh, his flaws. We all have flaws, not because he's perfect, but this journey was profound and it was sacrifice, a self-sacrificing journey. And hopefully we brought that point across. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Paris Baker, who had to leave. Mark Blunt, Art Leopold, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on board. Thank you so much to viewers, the listeners, for being with us. Tune in next time, fourth Sunday of the month, on next on WQLM. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We will see you next time.